Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, thank you, Brian, so much for leading us in prayer. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open that up to the book of Genesis. We're still in chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those and very easy passage to find. This morning, first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 31 today. Uh, a very uh, big question that a lot of people think about, talk about, and ask about in our age is this question of self-image or self-esteem, this question of how you view yourself. Uh, we all know some people who probably view themselves a little too highly. We call these arrogant people, prideful people, um, but we also know some who value themselves maybe much too lowly, and these are people plagued with constant insecurity, people who uh, might tell you, if they were honest, that they actually hate themselves, and they're plagued with self-loathing. Now, this whole issue of self-esteem, it's probably been abused in some circles, uh, to kind of direct us to being kind of overly concerned about ourselves so that we're just kind of obsessed with ourselves, and that certainly is not what the Scriptures would direct us to do. But it does raise, I think, a good question, which is how, how do you view yourself? What do you think of yourself? Do you have value? Do you believe you have value? Do you believe you are of worth in this world? And if so, on what do you base that opinion? Is it just what you happen to think and want to believe? Is it just what your friends tell you, or is it based on something else? Could it be based on what God says? And God does speak to this issue, and that's what we're going to look at here today. You know, very often as Christians, when we talk about the gospel, we might say something very simple like this. You know, you're a sinner, and you need a Savior. And we agree with that. I mean, that, that is true, but do you know that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible doesn't start with the problem of sin. The Bible actually begins before that with the doctrine of creation, and that's what we're looking at here in this sermon series, The Gospel According to Genesis. We don't get to sin until Genesis 3, and we're still in Genesis chapter 1, and this description about how God has made us and what he has made us like tells us some astonishing things about who you are as a human being. God says some amazing things here, and we're going to take a look at that. We've got a slow build up here. We've been over the last couple of weeks looking at the six days of creation, taking one day at a time. You might remember God created, everything was in chaos, and then um, God divided up the waters, and there was dry land, and there was plants and trees planted, and then there were uh, sea creatures, and then animals on the dry ground. And so you've got this kind of progression. It's like God's creative process is moving forward to a climax, to a, a pinnacle, to a peak, to a summit. And that's what we're going to read about right now here in these passages in Genesis 1. And it says something very wonderful about you and me. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. <clears throat> so we're still on the sixth day, by the way. We left in the middle of the sixth day last week and did not complete that. So um, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God, we thank you for your word. Please send your spirit to give us understanding as we listen to your voice now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So really the question uh, that is being answered here in these verses in Genesis is the question of what it is to be a human being. What is it to be human? Have you thought about that, wondered about that? I mean, what is it just that distinguishes us as human beings from the animals that God has made previously here uh, on day six. Well, there's three things that distinguish us as human beings. To be human, first of all, is to resemble God. To resemble God. To be like God. Now remember last week, we considered what God did in creating the luminaries. Remember he put the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and we spent some time talking about what a marvelous thing that is when you look into outer space and consider the, the, the heavenly bodies, just how much it fills our hearts with awe to think of the largeness of the universe and the size of the stars and the number of the stars. We look up and we're just like overwhelmed. It's like what a marvelous universe this is. But I think what the scriptures are telling us here is that you all are more marvelous than all those stars. That you are all greater in glory than the sun and the moon and everything that God has hung in the sky. Can you believe that? That's what the scripture is telling us because what the scripture says is that the one who made all of those things is the one that you resemble. You resemble, you are like the maker of the sun, the moon, and the stars in the entire universe. Friends, you are not a mere animal. You are not an automaton or a robot. You're something much more than that. You're a step up from that. You're a different class. You have more value than everything else in the created order. Herman Boving says this, among creatures, only man is the image of God. God's highest and richest self-revelation and consequently, the head and crown of the whole creation. When's the last time you thought of yourself in that way? I am the head and crown of creation. And that's what the scriptures are telling us. A couple of words that are used here. We're made in the image of God, verse 26. Let us make man in our, in our image. Probably the, the background to this is that uh, kings in this day and age, uh, to show their authority over a land, they would set up a, a statue in that land. Uh, you know, the king couldn't be in every single land that he had authority over, so he'd set up a statue. And that way, people in that land could look at the statue and say, ah, there's an image of the one who rules over us. 
And that's the context behind this word image. You, as a human being made in the image, are the image of God who rules over the entire universe. And in this time, it was only kings that were actually considered to be made in the image of God. That was only for the people in the very exalted positions of the world, but the scriptures come in and say, no, this is not a privilege reserved for just kings and queens, but for every single human being. No matter what your IQ is, no matter what your GPA was last semester, no matter how much money you make, no matter how big your retirement savings is, no matter what your job is, no matter what city you live in, no matter how bad you might feel about yourself, you are made in the image of your creator. So we also have this word likeness that is used in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, this is an important word, too. It makes a very important distinction because when you're like something, you're not the same as it. To be like something is not to be identical with it, and we need to make sure we don't misunderstand this. This passage is not saying that we are divine. This is not saying that we are gods. This is not saying that we're little gods on the earth, nor is it saying that we are one day going to be gods, as some false teaching says. No, we're not gods, but we resemble God, just like when people say, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Talking about his son, similar to his father. He's the spitting image of his father. You are the spitting image of the creator of the universe. Have you thought about that? That that's what scripture says about you. Now you may have grown up and through your whole life perhaps you've just been hearing criticism after criticism from whomever you live with or grew up with. You might be the victim of verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. All you've heard is negativity all your life. And you just feel like you're worthless. And you're depressed and you're sad because you feel like you have no value. Friends, rejoice today in what the scripture says is true of you. Psalm 8. We've already heard a little bit of this and are called to worship. But the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and the angels. Just a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Well, what are these characteristics that um, make us different than the animals? What, What constitutes this status of being made in God's image? Well, there's a number, number of things. We are rational beings. This sets us apart from the animals. We have an intellect. We can think through things. We can write books on philosophy. We can come up with great works of fiction. This is not something the animal world does. We're given rational minds. We can even think God's thoughts after him. It's part of what it is to be made in his image. Morality. We're moral creatures. We know that there's a right and a wrong, and we know that there's a difference between the two, and we have a conscience that bothers us when we do the wrong thing. That's not to be true of the animals. To be made in God's image is to be a moral being. It's to be an aesthetic being, creature. We value beauty. You know, we want things to look good. (laughs) We like movies, and we like music, and we know the difference between beauty and ugly, and we prefer what is 
beautiful and we seek to create because we are made in the image of a God who is a creator of beautiful things. Again, not to be said of the animal kingdom. We are responsible. We're responsible for what we do. Nobody holds a dog responsible for killing a rabbit. He's not responsible for that. I mean, he did it, but he's not morally culpable for that. We don't consider him a bad dog for that. He's not responsible, but you and I, as creatures made in God's image, are personally accountable for all of our words and all of our actions, even our thoughts. And we're also worshiping beings. Part of what it is to be made in God's image is that we have an instinct to live for something that is greater than ourselves. We know we can't live just for our own interests. We want to live for something greater and grander. And this also tells us that we're also made to have relationship with the God in whose image we have been created. God has created you not just to know that he exists, but to have a relationship with him, to, to know him, to walk with him through life, to know that he knows you and loves you. All of these are part of what it is to be made in God's image. It is just impossible to overestimate how important and foundational this doctrine is to the scriptures. So foundational to many of the ethical decisions that we make as we seek to live in this world. You know, a lot of people talk about human rights and how important human rights are. We need to stand up for human rights and we're scandalized when human rights have been violated. Do you know that the whole concept of human rights is basically based on this doctrine? There are no human rights unless we can say that human beings are different than animals, that there's something that distinguishes them. There's a philosopher named Luke Ferry at the University of Paris says this, it's quite clear that in this Christian reevaluation of the human person, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. Human rights owes its existence to the biblical doctrine of being created in the image of God. This means as we look at all different kinds of people, we have love and respect for them, knowing how they were created. We, we look at the elderly languishing in nursing homes, forgotten. We don't consider them expendable. We don't seek to end their lives prematurely. They are made in the image of God. They bear the image of the creator of the universe until God in his sovereignty decides to take them. When we consider the lives of the unborn in the womb, we seek to protect them. We don't look for ways to exterminate them. Those are lives made in God's image, the most vulnerable among us, and deserve the protection of those who have the power to do that. When we look at minorities, we love, respect, and want to give equal opportunity and never discriminate against minorities because everybody from every nation and of every skin color is made in the image of God. And so this is the foundation on which we oppose all forms of racism because all human beings bear the image of the Creator. And this is why you also, when you talk to others about the subjects that I just mentioned and start getting in arguments about it, you remember that the person you're talking to is also made in the image of God. And you show that person respect and kindness and love, and you listen to that person. Because no matter how much you might disagree with him or her, that person is a bearer of the image of the Creator. Here's what James 3 says. No human being can tame the tongue 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You're not to curse, slander, denigrate those made in God's image. So, this is the first thing. This is what makes you a human being. You resemble God. You're godlike. You're not God, but you're like God. All right, the second thing. To be human is to relate to others. To be human is to be a relational, a social being. Now, I'm going to pull this from a couple pronouns here that are kind of peculiar. If you go back to verse 26, God said, let us, it says, make man in our image. Now, why do I say those are peculiar pronouns? The reason is because I've been telling you through this sermon series that one of the main reasons that Genesis is written is to dispute this idea that there are many gods. That's what most people believed at this time, polytheism. There are many gods. Moses writes Genesis as a way of saying, no, there's not many gods. There's only one God, and he has created all things. And then, though, we look and we get these pronouns, let us make man in our image. So what is it? Is God one or is God many? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is this. God is one and many at the same time. God is one and he is three. And that's not a contradiction. God is one in essence. He is three in person. I think what we're getting here in Genesis chapter 1 is the doctrine of the Trinity in seed form, in its very most basic idea. I don't think Moses, when he wrote this, was probably intending to teach the Trinity. It probably wasn't in his mind. But keep in mind that Moses wasn't the only one writing this, right? We know that the Bible writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> So God the Spirit used Moses here, I think, to get this kind of doctrine of the Trinity started, in a sense. Second Peter says this, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is guiding Moses. He uses these particular pronouns, and as Revelation continues over time, and particularly when we get to the New Testament, we see what the Spirit of God meant here, that God exists as God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, all divine, equal in glory and power, co-eternal, and yet one God. It's important for us to understand this. I mean, nobody can comprehend it. I get that. But this is, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. No other religion holds to a God who is triune and yet one at the same time. We're seeing this develop. So here's an implication of this, though. If God is not just merely one, if he exists as three persons, he exists in kind of a community, you might say. If God doesn't exist in isolation from other persons and we're made in his image, that means we shouldn't exist in isolation from other persons. We are not created to live alone as radical individuals. We're not called to turn away from relationships but to enter into them. C.S. Lewis said this, kind of a 
heavy thought, but just really captures this idea well. He says, at the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these persons within God, they exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. They have relationship. The pattern of the three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. This triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, this is not just a Christian thing. This is a human thing. This is what it is to be human, to live in relationship with others. So how about you? Is that part of your life? Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts, that's true. We don't all need the same amount of time with other individuals as the rest of us do, but you need, you need some. And we try to facilitate that here at this church. We, we want you to have relationships with one another. We do have life groups here. These are small groups, they meet uh, every week or every other week, and this is the time of the year when we talk a lot about life groups, and so I want to encourage you to join a life group. Um, some groups are mask required, some of them are mask optional. Uh, in this time of COVID, probably we need time together more than ever before, right? I think people are feeling more detached than, than ever before. So we do have sign-up sheets in the foyer, and you can go back, take a look at the days that they meet, and see who the leaders are, and sign up, and I would encourage you to do that. You were made to relate to others. Now let me take a moment to, to talk about something else here that um, I just feel like I have to mention because it's such an issue in our culture, but notice in verse 27 how God created us in his image. At the very end of verse 27 it says male and female. Male and female, he created them. So apparently there's something about being made in the image of God that cannot be contained with just one gender not just with all men, not just with all women, but male and female together. And if you look at this and say, well, this is Old Testament stuff, well, Jesus says it too. He affirms this in Mark 10. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And we have a current trend in, in our culture right now uh, regarding transgenderism. And it's being said in our culture that uh, a person who wants to change and become a different sex than he or she has been born, that's perfectly fine. There's something called gender dysphoria that, that some people experience, and it's a very legitimate condition where there's a conflict in their mind between what their biology tells them and the way they feel about their biology. Their biological sex says one thing, but in their heart or in their mind, they want to be the other thing. And what our culture is telling us that is that when that conflict happens, the desire or the mind ought to win every time. Not what the biological sex is telling, but what the person wants. And so if someone's born as a boy, wants to be a girl, he ought to be able to be a girl. And if someone's born as a girl, wants to be a boy, he, she ought to be able to be a boy. The thing that's so shocking about this is that it's been reduced down to uh, the level of how our children feel about themselves. And so just in last year, 2019, the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out to say that if a young child, no matter what age, I mean as low as you know, five years old, a boy decides he wants to be a girl, that efforts should be taken to make sure that that can happen. That's from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Others say the same thing. I mean, friends, that's just, that just seems like child abuse to me. 
That's just, that's just insanity. I mean, we should be willing to, to speak into this. We, we should not encourage people to pursue sex change operations or transition if that's something that they're struggling with. God has created us male and female. If you look down to verse 31, you can see God's assessment of this. God saw everything that he had made, including that he made humanity male and female, and he said, behold, it's very good. It's like God likes it that way. He's intended it this way, that there are two genders, two biological sexes, male and female, and that's it. A guy named Owen Strahan says, to fail to honor God in one's body is to blaspheme divine design. To put it differently, biology is destiny. Your body's not lying to you. Your anatomy is telling you who you are and who God made you to be. Now, how do we respond to this? I mean, the first thing I would say is if you know somebody or have someone in your family, friends who struggle with gender dysphoria, remember that person also was created in the image of God. Don't forget that. Everything said in point one still applies to that person. We are not to look at people who struggle with this and make fun of them or avoid them or denigrate them or regard them with contempt. We love them. We respect them. We seek to care for them. But we don't encourage them to change their biological sex. That is not helping. Maybe one thing we can do is consider the way sometimes gender stereotypes tend to fence us in a little bit. You know, I mean, there are some men who love cooking and maybe dancing and even ballet. And that should be okay. It's okay. It doesn't mean that that man wants to be a woman. He just has different, different, uh, certain interests that maybe are not similar to what other men are interested in. We, we need to accept that. Same thing with women. There are some women who are strong and bold. They're athletic. They're handy around the house. That doesn't mean they want to be a man. It's just that some of their strengths maybe um, defy some gender stereotypes that our culture has, has created. We should be beware of that. Um, the way to thrive in this world as a human being, friends, is to embrace the gender, to embrace the biological sex that God has assigned to you at birth. That was very good, the way he made you. One last thing we see here is that to be human is to rule over creation. To be human is to rule over creation. So to bear the image of God is not just who we are by nature, but it also has something to do with what we're, what we're called to do. Uh, the task that, Job has, that God has, has given us. In verse 28, God kind of gives a job description to humankind. Like, here, here's what I want you to do. And here's what he says, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's kind of a repetition of what is said in verse 26. So what God has been doing for the whole six days of creation is taking order and putting it together, taking chaos and kind of making sense out of it. So he takes six days to do that, and now what he does here at the end of the sixth day is he hands creation over to us and says, here, you guys take it from here. I, I've done this kind of preliminary creative work, but now I want you to move forward, 
to subdue, to multiply throughout the earth and through the human race to take dominion over what I have made. These words, subdue and dominion, they're they're not uh, an excuse to exploit or dominate or abuse the created order as human beings sometimes do. That's not what this is saying. It's, It's cultivate it, care for it, preserve it, develop it, bring out of it everything that is there for the flourishing of humankind. That's our job as human beings. Again, this is not just a Christian thing. This is a human thing. This is what all human beings are called to do. Anthony Hokema says, man is called by God to develop all the potentialities found in nature and humankind as a whole. He must seek to develop not only agriculture, horticulture, animal husbandry, but also science, technology, and art. This is the cultural mandate, the command to develop a God-glorifying culture. That's God's command to all of us. When Gutenberg made the printing press, when Beethoven wrote Moonlight Sonata, when the Wright brothers invented the airplane, when Steve Jobs developed the iPhone, those are all expressions of the cultural mandate. Inventing things, doing the best that we can with what God has made so that human life can flourish. This tells you, you know, that, that there is value in secular work. You know, you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary in order to please God. God has set forth all kinds of work in response to the cultural mandate for your own benefit as a human being. The simplest application of this, friends, is just this. To be a human being is to be a worker. It's to be busy. It's to be productive in this life. We can be too busy. There is something called workaholism. And so God provides us at the seventh day a Sabbath rest. We'll talk about that next time. But note that the way God has laid it out here is six days of work and one day of rest, not six days of rest and one day of work. You need to be busy. You need to be productive because that's the way God has designed you to be. So what is it to be human? You resemble the creator of the universe. You relate to other people, and you rule over creation. Now, here's the problem. We don't do any of those things very good, very well. We don't do any of those things very well. Rather than resembling God, we end up fleeing from him and rebelling against him, forgetting about him, refusing to thank him, refusing to obey him. We don't resemble God very well on this earth. And we don't always relate well to others either. We hold grudges. We get angry. We resent people. Sometimes we resort to violence and slander. We don't relate to others super well. And we also don't rule over creation so well either. We get lazy. We get slothful. Sometimes we support efforts that that abuse, denigrate the created order. See, all this is true because of what we're going to learn about in Genesis 3, that humankind fell and sin entered the world and everything that God was anticipating in creating us in his image was spoiled by the fall. Now, the image is not lost. We're all sinners, but we still bear the image of God. And that's kind of the unique place we have. We're both reflecting God's image, but we're also sinners. And the fact that we don't do these things very well means that as a human race, we have fallen way short of everything God has called us to be. 
So we need help. (laughs) And God has sent it in the person of Jesus Christ. Because we think of Jesus very often as Messiah, we think of him as Savior, but do you know what else Jesus is? He is the perfect human being. The perfect man. He fulfilled all of these three points perfectly. He resembled God perfectly. His will was to do his Father's will. He gave himself fully and completely to obedience to the Father. And the New Testament tells us in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what it is to be in the image of God, look at Jesus. He's the one who encapsulates that the best, fully obedient to God when we haven't been. But you know, Jesus also related very well to other people too. He got that down. He said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. He, he loved people, he loved his enemies, and in fact he loved them so much he gave up his life for them. How about that for relating well? Serving, willingly died for others. And yeah, Jesus also ruled over creation well. Do you remember the stories of him speaking to the storm and calming it and walking on water? Hebrews even tells us that through his word, the entire universe is held into place. Jesus rules over creation. He relates well to others. He resembles God perfectly. And friends, if you want to be fully human in this world, you need a relationship with him. You need to trust him to take your place. You need to stop basing your eternal life and sense of status before God on how you're doing on these things because only Jesus did that in a way that is satisfactory in the eyes of God. Your only hope to know God, to know that he loves you and accepts you and has forgiven your sins is to trust in Jesus and not yourself. The perfect image of of God. And once you do that, Christian, you, you, you trust in Christ and you turn your faith to him, you repent of your sins, and then what happens is that through the rest of your life, what God does is slowly conforms you to the image of Jesus. So whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever disappointment you're going through, whatever frustration you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, whatever you're shedding tears over right now, I can tell you this, if you're a Christian, what God is doing in that moment is making you like Jesus. Through that specific thing, whatever it is, as painful as it is, that's what he's doing. Because that's what he does with all of his people who trust him. He conforms us to the image of his son. We look forward to that day when he comes again and we are fully and completely and totally transformed into his image. And at that point, we will know fully what it is to be a human being made to reflect the glory of God. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives us. We pray, oh God, that your spirit would continue to work, conforming us, making us like your son. And um, Lord, we pray that he would be exalted and honored in all that we do say and think. In Jesus' name, amen.